This is Amy, Vinny, Elizabeth, Matthew, and Warren from Science in the News' Sit and Listen. You're hearing some new voices today, and that's because we wanted to try something new. At the top of the show, we always say, Science in the News aims to open the lines of communication between scientists and the broader public. But what about between scientists and philosophers, historians, or urban planners? We're not the only ones thinking deep thoughts about science, so why do this alone? Hi, I'm Matthew. I'm a scholar in science technology studies, STS for short, and a fellow in the Harvard program on science, technology, and society. Science and technology studies analyzes the interactions between science and society. And I'm Warren, an urban planning student at Harvard's Graduate School of Design. You've heard from the rest of us scientists before, but never quite like this. Today's edition is a part of a recurring series of podcasts on science and society, where graduate students and other experts across various disciplines, science, public policy, design, history, you name it, discuss a wide range of topics, from gender to climate change. After all, these are topics scholars in many disciplines are contributing to. This series is largely a collaboration between Science in the News and the program in Science, Technology, and Society at Harvard's Kennedy School of Government. Our next two episodes of what we're calling, for now, Sit in Society, are going to cover exactly those topics I just mentioned, gender and climate change. But for our first episode, we're going to do a little bit of navel-gazing and talk about science communication, which is generally defined as the presentation of scientific topics to non-scientists, also known as public dissemination of science. And that's what we do best here at SITN. So I guess at the top of today's show, we can say, Sit and Listen is a production of Science in the News, a graduate student organization at Harvard dedicated to opening the lines of communications between scientists and other scholars and letting you in on the conversation. We hope you like it. My name is Vinnie Money, and I'm a PhD student in immunology at Harvard, studying how immune cells talk to each other and how we can harness these communications to create better vaccines and immunotherapies. My experience thus far with science communication comes predominantly from my role as a former co-director of Science in the News. I'll be telling you along the way a little bit about my perspectives and musings, a la SITN. Let's dive right into the numbers here, as scientists tend to do. According to a recent Pew Research Center survey, more than 50% of U.S. adults think that great scientific research is being done in America, and 80% believe that science positively impacts society. However, in the past five years since their last study, disillusionment with science has been growing among U.S. adults. So what gives? We propose that this stems from a disconnect between most U.S. adults and professional scientists. Check this out. According to that same study, 90% of U.S. scientists surveyed think genetically modified foods are safe to eat. Yet two-thirds of U.S. adults, excluding scientists now, believe that GM foods are unsafe to eat and think that scientists do not clearly understand the health effects of genetically modified foods. So we apparently disagree pretty seriously about some of these facts. We also misperceive each other. 90% of scientists surveyed think climate change is real and caused by humans. I suspect that number would be even higher if only climate scientists had been surveyed. 40% of Americans, on the other hand, think that scientists actually don't agree on climate change. These aren't new divisions. So let's start by reaching back into the 1800s, an era that some consider the golden age of popular science, at least in Britain. Take it away, Matthew. This is a short story told from my own perspective as a researcher. Looking back, scholars have identified a cultural shift from thinking of science as knowledge to be transferred to thinking of science as a site of negotiation or, or interaction between scientists and publics. It's a shift from communication to participation. 
Here I'll, I'll quickly sketch out that historical tale and end with the present day. In the 19th century, professional science was a relatively new thing. The term scientist itself wasn't around until William Huell coined it in the 1830s, creating with it a new sort of scientist-layperson relationship in Britain. According to some historians, the difference between these emerging experts and the average person was perceived as one of degree rather than kind. Media of the time portrayed scientific inquiry as an extension of common sense, which just happened to be progressing farther and faster than the average person could follow. With this idea of a lagging public, the corresponding solution was to close the gap through popular science materials. These took the form of easy-to-read journals, like Nature, which looks quite different today, and chemical news, as well as museums, traveling exhibitions. This model of science communication began to lose its hold in the interwar period of the 20th century. In many ways, science broke from common sense. Some of the most exciting things happening, like quantum physics, simply could not be explained in common sense terms or in weekly digest. It was in this period that science popularization turned to the less pedagogical enterprise of spreading inspiring but relatively uninformative images of science's power and progress. Science writers penned heroic profiles of the international men of science and invoked the ambivalent otherworldly feats of nuclear fission and atomic energy. We heard that cancer would be cured and hunger, a thing of the past. In time, many people grew disillusioned with science, with both its applications and its lack of applications. In the 70s and 80s, we saw deadly effects of Agent Orange, prospects of a global environmental crisis, a silent spring, and bad tobacco research. These stood in stark contrast to the hopeful and aggrandizing messages of the previous decades. Science was no longer equated with progress and wasn't trusted to be left autonomous. So it no longer made sense to simply disseminate expert knowledge. Simultaneously, citizens proved through activism and protest that they could effectively influence expert judgment, as when patient activists rejected standard medical trials for HIV treatment. They successfully argued that their input was necessary not only to make clinical trials more fair, but also to make them more reliable. Steve Epstein describes this as one of the few cases where the lay public has really participated in biomedical research. These dynamics have continued into the 21st century, in the controversies around genetically modified foods and in the rejection of vaccines among some communities. There is a persistent temptation now to return to the 1800s and argue these debates are caused by an ignorant, backwards public. But the most recent wave of science technology studies defies this easy solution. STS scholars argue that we should reorient our thinking towards issues of democracy and participation. They've expended many pages trying to push our conception of science communication forward, debunking the belief that public ignorance causes the mistrust of science, that factual disagreement is the root of controversy. One way they do this is by reminding us the many ways in which lay people actually know quite a lot about their world. People who experience a problem firsthand develop different but potentially powerful ways of understanding societal challenges, whether it is the environmental effects of fracking on tap water or the experience of living with AIDS. So, Matthew, that segment is really interesting and actually somewhat parallels my own naive experiences. When I first joined Science in the News, my school of thought on science communication was, well, perhaps the public is ignorant or doesn't have access to scientific information in an accessible format. That was actually the original premise upon which SITN was founded by another student, Liz Wally, 17 years ago. We're not alone. 84% of scientists surveyed in that study that I mentioned before believe that it's a major problem for science that the public isn't well informed. Our remedy in SITN was then, let's put the information out there and people will come around. 
But as we just heard from Matthew, STS scholarship doesn't back that up. And STS was ahead of the curve here. They began identifying that the disconnect between scientific experts and non-experts wasn't caused by an information deficit since at least 10 years ago, but their scholarship hasn't been widely circulated or acknowledged by the scientific community. In fact, it's not until recently that scientists have begun coming to the same conclusion, but using different methods. Hey everyone, I'm Elizabeth, and I'm a PhD candidate in biological and biomedical sciences here at Harvard. As scientific knowledge develops into consumer products and into policy, non-scientists become increasingly involved in debates alongside scientists, though for many of these instances, debate among scientists is minimal. We would often like to think that just giving policymakers and the public more information would result in them agreeing with our conclusions and moving forward with appropriate measures. But there's evidence more information doesn't mean more consensus. One study in Nature Climate Change found that those with the highest levels of science literacy were not necessarily the most concerned with climate change. Instead, they were the most polarized in their opinions on the debate. Their actual opinion lined up with those others who shared their cultural values. People with more egalitarian, communitarian outlooks perceived climate change as a bigger risk than people with a hierarchical, individualist perspective. Another study showed that people who were not familiar with nanotechnology similarly split into two camps upon receiving balanced information about its risks and benefits. The groupings aligned with the same cultural predictors as those that drew the dividing line between people who were concerned and not concerned with climate change. And nanotechnology is a less politicized debate. There's actually a phrase for this, cultural cognition. Cultural cognition is the influence of group values on how we perceive things like the information presented in these studies. The theory is that due to cultural cognition, we are all more likely to agree with information that supports the views we already hold. And I do mean all of us, not just the other guys. This also relates to the types of experts certain people will trust, which is important in how well-received the message of a scientist or other authority figure is. Another study found that when pro or con statements concerning mandatory HPV vaccination were attributed to experts with different value sets, Groups that agreed with them generally were more likely to shift their opinion according to the statement. Certain people are more likely to trust a suited white-haired man, and others a bearded hipster type. It goes to show that people do rely on expert testimony, but mostly on that of experts they feel they can relate to, and that isn't always us. And even if it is just left to us to convince a varied group of people, we can take a lesson from this study and other research. People don't want to be talked down to or have their concerns ignored. They want to hear from someone who understands where they're coming from, and even if we aren't a part of that group, we can do our best to listen and empathize and personalize our message in that way. We as scientists, therefore, have to sometimes figure out how to strike a balance between educating the public and listening to concerns and information that they may have, which in some cases could lead to important practical insights that we may not have considered at a distance. But we must also stand firm in convincing people to come over to the side of science in a number of these debates. We've been framing this episode around a disconnect between scientists and non-scientists usually being thought of as an average person on the street. But now that we've dug deeper, we've discovered another disconnect between professors in science and professors in STS, just across the campus from each other. Why? Maybe STS scholars just needed to share their findings, do some good old-fashioned STS communication for their colleagues. But I suspect that many scientists agree at least a little with scientism, the idea that science is the only real source of knowledge. So it could also be that the scientific community just didn't value STS scholarship. 
they valued different research methods. Even if scientists had been aware of the STS work showing that more scientific information does not always equal a more positive attitude towards science, they might have waited until quantitative scientific studies reproduced these findings in order to believe it. Now, I think these new scientific findings are definitely getting attention among scientists, but I still don't know many scientists who are aware of the related STS work. But if we go even further down this rabbit hole, maybe it's just timing. We're straight up baffled now that after years of trying to explain climate science hasn't moved the needle on public belief in climate change. So someone finally decided to test the hypothesis that more information is the antidote. The results of that experiment don't look good. So clearly a major use of science communication is with a particular agenda to try to resolve scientific controversies. Another big agenda item for scientists when they talk about their research is procuring funding. Referencing the same Pew Center study again, 83% of scientists feel that it is now more difficult to acquire federal funding for scientific research than it was a mere five years ago. Funding for science that has direct implications for society, such as medical research, though, can be easier to justify than the more foundational scientific research. The pressing need to secure funding has drastically influenced the way scientists talk about their work, bringing the focus to potential applications. These discursive and institutional interactions between funding agencies, scientists, and the public create an implicit social contract. I'm Amy Gilson, a PhD candidate in chemical physics. SITN has been one of my homes throughout graduate school, as co-director and in various other positions. In my research, I'm working on understanding how the protein molecules encoded in our and every organism's genomes evolve. This kind of work might help predict and counter evolution of antibiotic resistance. See how I just did that? Pivoted from the topic of my research to its potential application? That was to quickly contextualize the work, but it was also because we're used to justifying our work through its application in order to win funding. If you want the dough, you have to make bread with it. The term basic science was coined by Vannevar Bush in the 1940s to describe fundamental research that lays the groundwork for applied sciences, applied sciences directed towards a practical goal. He proposed that in exchange for giving scientists in universities and national labs funding and relative independence to work on whatever they want, society would reap the practical benefits that basic science can lead to. For example, Maxwell developed the theory of electromagnetism by which cell phones, satellites, and radios transmit signals today back in the 1800s. And if electromagnetism weren't always kicking around, ready to be applied, it's hard to imagine that an inventor would have hit upon it while trying to make a better form of communication. They probably would have just tied two carrier pigeons together. The contents of this social contract between scientists and society, as well as the terms basic and applied science, are extremely widely used by scientists, so much so that it's just in the air, taken for granted. But most scientists probably didn't know the history of these ideas. I didn't, until I started trawling the STS literature for this episode. It was kind of embarrassing, like I thought I was using my own words and thoughts, but I was actually indebted to Bush's work back in the 1950s. But anyways, the social contract comes with some problems. It creates a split between personal motivation and public justification for many scientists. It also presumes that public value of research will only exist at the practical end product stage, when you're holding that iPhone or that pill in your hand. 
But what primarily motivates many researchers is just curiosity, desire to expand the limits of knowledge, or because research can be really enjoyable. Thus, while pure science can have big practical payoffs, the reason why it gets done is much the same as the reason that art and music gets made, or why sports are played. Art, music, sports, science, they make you feel happy, they make you feel sad, they change the way you see yourself and the world around you, they connect you to something bigger than yourself. Now, while it's easier to make a living doing basic research than it is in art or music or sports, all these other professions have an advantage over us. Stadiums, museums, gallery, concerts, Spotify, fantasy football, these all connect fans with the finished product. A song is meant to be heard and seen by as many people as possible. And out there, it can be enjoyed or ignored or parodied, analyzed, criticized. But what's my finished product in the lab? It's a lovely scientific paper tucked away in a scientific journal where it's likely behind a paywall and definitely in language more technical than hotline bling. But why wait 10 years for a practical application of our work, for it to have public value, when we can make it valuable right now? This is where science communication comes in, scoring the field goal or playing the violins of basic science for anyone to hear. The way science in the news is run, we show the processes and methods behind scientific research, as well as the results. This way, you're not just entertaining with the facts, but also being somewhat more transparent with how scientific knowledge is produced. The attitude is eerily similar to the administration's language on governmental openness. To ensure the public trust and establish a system of transparency, public participation, and collaboration. Science is powerful, and on principle, we think that powerful institutions must be transparent for a just democracy. But do we want to go so far as to advocate any more direct public oversight of scientific research? And I'm pretty sure every scientist listening just had a tiny aneurysm at the thought of that, as I just did. Or informal open access mechanisms, such as SITN. Anytime we talk about science communication, it's a useful exercise to ask to what extent the topic we're examining, in this case, communicating science, has challenges and features truly unique to the sciences. In this spirit, Let's take a look at how urban planners, coming from another powerful and specialized profession, have communicated their plans to the communities affected by them and ask how their model could work for science. Thanks, Vinny. Hi, Warren again, the urban planning student. And as Vinny alluded, the dilemma of how to constructively engage the public is not unique to the sciences. In fact, the design professions, architects, landscape architects, and city planners, spend a lot of ink and words trying to refine the best methods of engaging the public. Architects and planners look at everything that's going on in a city and try to navigate a way forward that optimizes certain outcomes. How much housing should be built, how many new roads and bridges are needed, where the parks are needed, etc. But without the public's input and buy-in of these critical questions about our collective future, we wouldn't know where to go. And so communication becomes important. However, it wasn't always this way, and the design professions have seen the roles dramatically change over the past century and a half. As Matthew mentioned with scientists, planners and architects used to be considered experts whose opinions and plans for the future of cities and towns across the United States and Europe were implemented without much question or resistance. This freedom of the profession from outside criticism was a reflection of the many urgent problems industrializing cities faced in the 1850s to the 1950s as a result of rapid population growth and dirty industries. There was poor air quality, impotable water, non-existent sewage systems. Occasionally, whole cities would burn down from crowded, hastily built buildings, such as Chicago in 1871 or Boston in 1872, 
New York suffered no less than three yellow fever epidemics and four cholera outbreaks. To this urban chaos, land use zoning, regulations, building codes, water and sewage infrastructure, mass transit, these all brought a degree of order to the city. Urban experts cleaned up streets, sped up commutes, opened grand parks for the public to enjoy. Like doctors administering to a sick patient, the design professionals' diagnoses were seen as cutting edge, beyond reproach, at least up until the 1950s. It was then, at around the same time the public began pushing back against exploitative scientific research, that city residents rallied against top-down planning practices, especially in reaction to so-called urban renewal plans. See, these schemes prioritized highways over people, clearing entire neighborhoods in the name of economic development, oftentimes displacing thousands of poor, immigrant, or non-white communities in the process. Planning expertise had run amok. Planners thought they were fixing cities, but ended up tampering with systems that weren't really broken. In response to these protests and political pressure, planning began to embrace bottom-up approaches. The community's voice became a paramount piece of any plan. Today, the community meeting is the cornerstone of the planning process, with members of the public interacting with planners and decision makers, giving them feedback on proposed plans and projects. Planners recognize that residents will always understand far more about a community than even the most scholarly planner could ever know, and we're no longer vested with unrestricted powers to improve society as master visionaries. Instead, planners are public advocates, gathering and magnifying many interests into a set of actionable goals, working hand-in-hand -hand with city residents. While the relationship between planners and the public is much improved, the two parties still clash. As Elizabeth noted earlier about scientific information, knowledge does not equate consensus. From the experience of urban planners, it's not entirely clear whether participation generates consensus either. New challenges have arisen that highlight the tension between the need for sweeping interventions on the one hand and the need for community participation on the other hand. Climate change is the best current example. In coastal cities such as Boston, adapting to sea level rise may require expensive protective infrastructures, perhaps even jacking up buildings and streets, or even retreating from the water's edge altogether. Recent storms, such as Hurricane Sandy, which flooded New York City's subway and demolished neighborhoods, remind us that these measures are needed sooner rather than later. That said, aligning various stakeholders, some of whom are skeptical of climate change, to agree on an adaptation plan has proven extremely difficult especially for a threat that may or may not manifest in the near future. Some states, such as Texas, even refuse to fund climate change adaptation measures because of popular disagreement over its reality. So while the difficulty in implementing large projects can be frustrating, tension is just one part of consensus building, and projects that stem from consensus are stronger than those that are perceived as imposed by an outsider. Indeed, the difficult conversations we have about a community's future in and of itself are a desirable outcome of city planning. Of course, planning by no means has solved its participation problem, and many voices are still left out. For the sciences, urban planning doesn't provide a crystal ball into utopian, participatory future. But it does provide an example of a profession who has similarly seen the role of its experts questioned, evolved in a certain direction, and which now faces some new challenges. I think the analogies between urban planning and science are really profound here. Warren, while we were chatting about this before, you mentioned that one of the challenges is that community meetings are arguably treated as formalities that developers go through to seal the deal. From my perspective, there's a really similar problem in the latest generation of science communication. Much of public participation is structured not necessarily to give citizens a role in science, but to prevent their rejection of particular applications of science, whether vaccines or GM foods 
or some other controversy. But insights between academic fields and from citizens to university scholars need not be accidental or constrained to the big controversies like those over climate and vaccines. Self-proclaimed citizen scientists contribute their observations of birds to ornithologists at Cornell. The self-taught researcher and Flint resident Leanne Walters did a crucial investigation into the water there and communicated her findings to Professor Mark Edwards, which was crucial in exposing the water crisis in her city. Obviously, the officials in her own state should have listened too. Talkback is one way to make science more democratic. In STS terms, the question we now face is not how to educate an ignorant public, but rather who gets to participate in knowledge production and how. We also need to consider how far these democratic ideals should go, though. Scientists are highly trained experts in specific fields, and we shouldn't throw away their knowledge just because it doesn't match popular opinion. On the other hand, we also can't dismiss the knowledge people have about their community or society and its needs. That said, incorporating people's voices and perspectives into the scientific process could greatly lengthen research times, just as participatory planning projects are implemented more slowly than autocratic projects. At the other extreme, it would be a very sad society in which a few experts speak for all citizens, deciding what counts as a societal problem and what doesn't. I think what we need is a bolder, balanced vision of public engagement. And that does involve educating the public. But as Sheila Jasanoff has argued here at Harvard, it is not education in the sense of memorization of facts or reverence for the scientific method. To the contrary, it consists in giving people a capacity to think about the place of science and technology in our lives and to judge when to use science and when not to. The way we at Science in the News approach certain aspects of science communication, as it seems to have morphed, is to generate such a healthy dialogue between experts and non-experts, humanizing scientists, as I like to say. And humanizing non-scientists for the scientists. For 17 years, the model by which Science in the News has been furthering scientific training and communication has promoted adaptation and personalization to various audiences. Constantly evolving peer-to-peer and public-to-scientist feedback keeps the organization abreast of the times and allows young scientists to more effectively interface with the public. Initially, the organization developed primarily through in-person events, such as two annual lecture series held through the course of the academic year at Harvard, a day-long science conference, science cafes called Science by the Pint, held in a bar venue. All of these are free and open to the public. While these flagship programs continue to run robustly with audiences of hundreds in the Boston area, Many of our latest efforts have been shaped by the dawn of communication technologies and social networks, and as SITN extends outside the Boston area by working online. This includes live streaming the lectures, engaging the public in a Reddit Ask Me Anything, our online blog with a deep social media connection, and our newest endeavor, a podcast titled Sit and Listen, which you're likely familiar with considering you're tuned in right now. Along with bringing insights into scientific developments to folks outside of the university, SITN is now more committed than ever to training graduate students to effectively communicate complex concepts to diverse audiences and to appreciate the rich social milieu in which research is embedded. We hope that this dual mission will elevate discourse around issues of science and society while allowing graduate students to build essential skill sets for their future careers. In fact, When soliciting advice from former scientists and colleagues in various career paths from policy to venture capital, they all converge on the importance of science communication skills and activities. 
Most of the lectures, articles, and discussions SITN organizes aren't even on topics that are controversial. They're on the biomechanics of the human body, or exoplanets. They're fun, and they aren't really aimed at resolving the big controversies. Now, stay with me. Apes maintain their relationships by picking bugs out of each other's fur, a practice known as social grooming. And some speculate that small talk, among humans now, is a modern version of social grooming. Now, I don't know how accurate these theories are, but as I've worked on this episode, I've started thinking about SITN as a form of social grooming. We have a lot of science-related events to nourish social bonds between science researchers and the folks who come to events or read our blog posts. Perhaps these can keep us on the same page, diminishing the chance a destructive controversy arises. Or perhaps these bonds can be activated in situations that might require group problem solving. It's the difference between working with a friend and seeking out someone you've never met before to solve a problem. You could call it basic science communication, curiosity, not application driven. But some practical benefits do arise. At least that's our hypothesis and aspiration. If we were to try to summarize this whole episode, it might go something like this. Scientists thought that communicating more scientific information would lead the public to agree with scientists on climate change, vaccines, science funding, pretty much anything. But it didn't work out that way. And now we're finally starting to understand that the problem isn't primarily lack of information, but something more social, lack of trust or understanding each other on a human level. But where exactly does that leave us? Philosopher Michael P. Lynch worries that, and now I'm quoting, without a common background of standards against which we measure what counts as reliable sources of information or a reliable method of inquiry and what doesn't, we won't be able to agree on the facts, let alone the values. Indeed, he argues, this is precisely the situation we seem to be headed towards in the United States. We're worried about this too, but how to avoid this situation isn't a scientific question. It's a question for all of us. In some ways, this exercise or task of creating this podcast is a social experiment encapsulating everything we set out to accomplish. Science in the news is then not a rigid model, but rather an ever-adapting experiment in establishing social dialogue between scientists, other academics, and the public. As scientists, it is only apt for us to find models which can evolve with changing technologies, information, and ideas. This leads to quite a tricky balancing act that we still don't know how to reach, or if there's even an endpoint to reach. As scientists, maybe the best thing we can do is keep experimenting with different approaches and engaging other disciplines in this experiment. And hey, that's what we're doing right now. We hope you enjoyed our first edition of Sit in Society. Thank you for tuning in and look out for our upcoming episodes of Sit and Listen on Mosquitoes. As well as our upcoming episode of Sit in Society, which is going to be on science and gender. We're always looking for feedback and also for topic suggestions. Feel free to email sitnpodcast at gmail.com. Like us on Facebook, follow Science in the News on Twitter, and definitely subscribe to Sit and Listen on iTunes. And don't forget to rate us. The SITN blog and this episode's show notes can be found on our website, sitn.hms.harvard.edu. Until next time. Yeah, man. <laughs> it's like a train. Yeah, I was thinking of a train. I think that did it. <laughs>